The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Father, would you please help us honor you as we exult in your unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways. Amen. This is the second sermon in a four-part series on predestination. Predestination is the Bible's teaching that God predetermined the destiny of certain individuals for salvation and others for condemnation. By the way, some of you asked about seeing my slides from last, last week's sermon. So for each of the four sermons in the series, I plan to include a PDF of the slides on the church website, and you should be able to access those at the same place where you find the sermon video. Now, in, in this sermon series, I'm answering one big question. What does the whole Bible teach about predestination? And to do that, I have crafted and arranged 15 questions. Last week, I introduced the series and then answered three questions about election. So question one, we saw last week, what is the goal of election? The goal of election is for God to save us so that we praise him for his glorious grace. Question two, when did God choose to save humans? God chose to save humans before he created the world. And question three, did God choose to save individuals? Yes, God chose to save individuals. In this sermon, I plan to answer three more questions about election, which follow what Paul argues in Romans 9. So here's where we're going. Question four, did God choose to save individuals on the basis of his foreseeing that they would freely choose to believe in him? Five, is unconditional election unfair? And six, does unconditional election entail that we do not have a free will? And you can see that I, I've cited Romans 9 in there for each of these three questions to show we're going to follow the logic of this passage. Romans 9 is the most important passage in the Bible on predestination, on God's choosing to save some individuals and not others, because it most clearly explains predestination. It directly addresses the most common objections. And personally, uh, Romans 9 is the decisive passage that God used to help me as a college student see, and not to see, but savor what God reveals about predestination. And similarly, when our pastor John Piper was in graduate school, he fought against the view of predestination that I'm arguing for in this sermon series. But after he arduously studied Romans 9, he surrendered and he wrote this in his journal. Romans 9 is like a tiger going about devouring free willers like me. <laughs> and he, he later reflected on that and said, that was the end of my love affair with human autonomy and the ultimate self-determination of my will. My worldview simply could not stand against the scriptures, especially Romans 9. And just a reminder for those of you who are, are newer to this church, when Pastor John Piper preached through Romans to our church, he preached 14 sermons on Romans 9. And 
we don't, we're not going to do that. Uh, that was back in 2002 and three. I remember those sermons well because I, even though I wasn't part of this church yet, I was devouring those sermons 20 years ago on cassette tapes as they came out. And if you'd like to go deeper in Romans 9, I'd recommend you start there. Listen to those sermons. They're on desiringgod.org. So we are, are born with a self-centered worldview, a self-centered view of the universe instead of a God-centered one. We naturally think it's all about me. I'm at the center. And what we need is a Copernican revolution so that our felt reality matches reality. So let's look at the book. Let's start with question four. Did God choose to save individuals on the basis of his foreseeing that they would freely choose to believe in him. So the question here is, what is the basis of God's election? On what basis did God choose to save some individuals? And the answer is God's foreknowledge. Look at Romans 8:29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or elected. Predestination is based on foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is the basis of election. First Peter 1, those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is the basis of election. That's not controversial. What's controversial is how to define foreknowledge. There are two basic ways to explain how God's foreknowledge is the basis of God's election. And again, for an overview of Arminianism and Calvinism, I refer you to the introduction of Sermon 1. I'm not going to retread that now. So here are the two views. Here's what they're called. Conditional election and unconditional election. According to the conditional election view, foreknowing is foreseeing. God's foreknowledge is his knowledge of what humans his knowledge of what humans would freely choose. He saw ahead what they would choose. So God foresaw that specific individuals would first freely choose to believe in him, and then afterwards he chose to save those individuals. So we call this conditional election because election depends on the condition. The condition is whether a human freely chooses Christ. So according to this view, God chose to save specific individuals because he foresaw that they would choose to trust him. So I think that this entails that the decisive factor in election is what a human freely chooses. For unconditional election, foreknowing is for loving. God's foreknowledge is his personal loving commitment to specific individuals. So God intimately knew and loved specific individuals beforehand. Those are the individuals God chose. And we call this unconditional election because it, election does not depend on any human conditions. It depends solely on God's sovereign good pleasure. So according to unconditional election, specific individuals choose to trust God because God chose to save them. The decisive factor in election is what God freely chooses. And the Bible, I believe, repeatedly 
emphasizes that the basis of election is God and not man. At least four arguments support unconditional election. Here's the first reason. God's sovereign choice is decisive. Paul's main idea in Romans 9, 6 to 13 is that God unconditionally elected only some Israelites. Here how he, here's how Paul begins, verses 6 to 9. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So not everyone who is part of physical or ethnic Israel is part of spiritual Israel. God chose to save a subset of all the Israelites. Those are the spiritual Israelites. And what Paul says next emphasizes that election is a sovereign choice of God. Verses 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So before the twins, Jacob and Esau, were in Rebekah's womb, God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. And the purpose is explicit. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. So God's promises to Israelites, Paul's arguing, have not failed because he has fulfilled them with reference to individual election. That's the argument in Romans 9. God never promised to save every single physical Israelite. God chose people based on his sovereign grace, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Election is based on God's purpose, not on what God foresaw a human would choose or do. So you have no grounds, none, for boasting that God chose you because of you. God didn't choose you because you are inherently better than other people. He did not choose you because you made a brilliant decision to choose him. No, God's sovereign choice is decisive. That's the first reason that the basis of election is God and not man. Here's a second reason. The questions in Romans 9, 14 and 19 presuppose unconditional election. So Paul teaches in verses 6 to 13 that God's sovereign choice is decisive, and that provokes some to object that it would not be right for God to act that way. So Paul answers two objections. Here's objection one. Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, it's not fair for God to choose to save individuals unconditionally. That's not fair. And here's objection two. 
Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, it's not fair for God to blame people for doing what he ordained they would do. God can't justly blame people. It's not fair for God to treat humans as morally responsible and culpable since no one resists his sovereign will. We'll come back to that second objection in a moment. But here's my point here. If the way that you explain Romans 9, 6 to 13 does not logically lead to this objection, is there injustice on God's part? Then you're not saying what Paul said. So the conditional election view, a view that election depends on what a human freely chooses, that doesn't lead to this objection or the second one. So when those who argue for conditional election uh, reject the view that election depends solely on God's sovereign good pleasure, they actually are rejecting it with the precise logic that Paul anticipates and refutes here. So they argue this way. They say it's not fair for God to save individuals unconditionally, and it's not fair for God to blame people since no one resists his sovereign will. Again, if your view of God's election doesn't lead to these objections, then your view of election is not Paul's view. And no one resists to the conditional election view by saying that's not fair. That's a second reason that the basis of election is God and not man. Here's a third reason. The basis for election is God's for love. God's for love. That's the basis. Let me show you a few passages. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, in love, he predestined us. He predestined us in love. God chose us based on his gracious love. Election is God's undeserved kindness, his gracious love. And he he predestined us, he chose us according to the purpose of his will. That word purpose means good pleasure. That's how the NASB and CSB translate the Greek word here, good pleasure of his will. God's not like a glorified computer. He is a person who loves you more than you can imagine. God chose us based on his good pleasure, and God chose us based on his grace. Look at 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God chose us based on his grace. The basis of election is not what a human chooses to do. It's God's grace. That's a third reason that the basis of election is God and not man. And here's a fourth reason. God foreknew people. You might be thinking, how's that an argument? Remember how uh, the conditional election view defines foreknowledge as foreseeing? Well, I'm arguing that's not the correct definition. It's not foreseeing, it's foreloving. Because the object of this activity, of foreknowing in the sense, is not events, it's not choices, it's people themselves. Let me show you a few passages that, that, that show you this. In Romans 8, 29... 
Paul writes, those whom he foreknew. So you foreknow people. Romans 11, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. 1 Peter 1, to those who are elect exiles. These are people according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then even Christ himself, Christ, Christ is a person. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknowledge in these passages does not refer to God's foreseeing choices that people would make. Foreknowledge refers to God's foreloving certain people. It means that God, he personally committed himself to specific individuals before they even existed. And, and that definition of foreknowledge may sound strange to you, but the Bible frequently speaks about knowing as more than mere intellectual information, like how Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Knowing in this sense is not merely factual but relational. God knows people in a relational way. For example, he tells the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Some translations say, I chose you. So, question four, did God choose to save individuals on the basis of his foreseeing that they would freely choose to believe in him? Answer, no. The basis of election is God's forelove. The basis of election is God's forelove. And that leads right to question five. Is unconditional election unfair? Here's a common way that people object to this view of unconditional election that I'm arguing for. It's unfair for God to choose to save only some humans, not based on any human condition, but solely on his sovereign good pleasure. That's an injustice. That's not fair. And Paul directly answers this objection in Romans 9, 14 through 18. So in verses 6 to 13, Paul anticipates that what he writes may provoke some to object that it wouldn't be right, wouldn't be fair, wouldn't be just for God to sovereignly and decisively choose to save only certain individuals and not others. So Paul argues that God has the right to do whatever he wants with his creatures, he, he answers the objection that it's not fair for God to choose to save individuals unconditionally. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. It's wrong to infer from verses 6 to 13 that there's injustice on God's part. And here's proof. The next word is for. For, he says to Moses. So here's proof that there is no injustice on God's part. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul quotes Exodus thirty-three nineteen to prove that God can have mercy on whomever he wants. And God would be just if he did not show mercy to a single sinful human. None of us deserves God's mercy. And then he draws an inference, verse 16. So then, I just covered up a keyword. There we go. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that word it refers to God's showing mercy 
and compassion to save individuals in verse 15. So what's decisive in whether an individual receives mercy is not human will or human exertion. What is decisive is God who has mercy. And here's further proof that there's no injustice on God's part. For, verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Paul quotes Exodus 9.16 to prove that God can harden whomever he wants in order to accomplish his purposes. And God raised up Pharaoh to show his power in Pharaoh. And the purpose and result was that others would proclaim God's name in all the earth. And then he ends with an inference. So then, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. God has mercy on whomever he wants and he hardens whomever he wants. So is there injustice on God's part? Is it unfair for God to sovereignly elect people based solely on his good pleasure? God is fair when he sovereignly has mercy on whomever he wants. God is always fair. Further, Jesus indirectly answers this question when he tells a story in Matthew 20, 1 to 16, which I'd summarize like this. God is fair when he is undeservedly kind to some and not others. So when God deals with people, the following two statements are true. I'm just going to add them to the bottom of this slide here. It's right here. First, God is always fair. He's always righteous. He's always just. He's never unfair, unrighteous, or unjust. And two, sometimes God is undeservedly kind. Sometimes God is merciful and gracious to people who don't deserve his kindness, but who actually deserve the opposite. They deserve God's wrath. And Jesus' parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20 illustrates that God is always fair and sometimes undeservedly kind. So Jesus tells this story. You might remember this one. It's about a landowner who hired people to work in his vineyard. And early in the morning, the landowner hired laborers who agreed to work all day for a denarius. That's about a day's wage. And then he hired more workers around 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. Then around 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And guess what he decided to pay those laborers who'd been working since 5 p.m.? A whole denarius, a whole day's wage for one hour of work. Wow. And then he paid a denarius to the laborers he hired at 3 p.m. and noon and 9 a.m. And then Jesus says this. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked for only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. I'm acting fairly. I'm acting justly. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? 
Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? This story illustrates that as long as God gives each person what he deserves, he's not unfair when he sovereignly chooses to be undeservedly kind to some. So, question five, is unconditional election unfair? Answer, no. Unconditional election is merciful and gracious. And this logically leads to our next question, question six. Does unconditional election entail or mean that we do not have a free will? Now, as we consider free will, let's start with Romans 9, 19 to 23, and then we'll we'll branch out from there. So let's read this passage again. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So Paul here is answering the objection that it's not fair for God to blame people for doing what he ordained they would do. It's not fair for God to treat humans as morally responsible and culpable since no one resists his sovereign will. And Paul answers this objection with two forceful responses. The first is, who are you to say that it's unfair for God to blame people? So instead of giving a philosophical answer to this apparent dilemma in verse 19, Paul rebukes anyone who would dare question God's right to find fault. He asks rhetorically, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, who do you think you are to backtalk our Creator How dare a sinful, finite human disrespectfully mouth off to the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good creator? If you don't understand how it's fair for God to find fault when he sovereignly has mercy on whomever he wants, then put your hand over your mouth. Don't call God's justice into question. Who do you think you are to criticize God Almighty? That's Paul's first response to the objection. His second response is that the potter, God, is free to mold the clay, us, however he wants. God relates to humans like a potter relates to clay. It would be ridiculous for the thing molded to say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The potter is free to mold the clay however he wants. 
The potter has the right to use a lump of clay to form vessels for honorable or special use, like uh, a, a vase for flowers or a special wine goblet. And the potter has the right to form from that same lump of clay vessels for dishonorable or common use, like a chamber pot or a trash can. Like a potter with his clay, God has the right to do whatever he wants with his creatures. That's Paul's response in verses 20, second half of 20 through 23. So that leaves us with the question, then in what sense do we have a free will? When we try to make sense of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, we humans tend to be adamant that we have a free will. And fair enough, everything in our experience confirms that our choices are genuine choices. For example, for lunch yesterday, I chose to eat chicken, air fried sweet potatoes, and broccoli. I chose it. No one forced me to eat that. I chose it. I could have chosen salmon or rice or purple grapes, but that's what I chose. I chose it. But here's the problem. Many of us presuppose, we assume, that because our choices are genuine choices, that therefore God can't ordain our free choices. Otherwise, we may wrongly conclude that God would be guilty of forcing us to sin. So that's why some people argue this way. God does not ordain who will believe in Christ and who will reject Christ because he wants a genuine, loving relationship, not a mechanical, pre-programmed, robotic outcome. But that view contradicts what God has revealed in the Bible. It assumes a definition of free will that's nowhere in the Bible, and then it explains away what is explicit in the Bible about God's meticulous sovereignty, which includes the destiny of every single human. So I'm going to attempt very briefly to explain this in five steps. First, a foundational truth. God the Creator is distinct from His creation. The Creator-creature distinction is fundamental to rightly understanding reality. God created the universe. God is not the universe. He created it. God, the Creator, is not within the universe. He created it. He's distinct from His creation. God's not part of creation. The universe is everything that is not God. And the eternal God existed before he created the universe. God is eternally self-existent. He's not dependent on anyone or anything else. So there was a time when my phone did not exist. There was a time when I did not exist. There was a time when the United States of America did not exist. There was a time when the earth did not exist. There was a time when the entire universe did not exist. But there was never a time when God did not exist. And it, it's not as if God is like a gigantic elephant and we're like gnats and he can force his will on us and overcome us with his power. No, God is not the biggest, 
most powerful, most knowledgeable creature within creation. He's not a creature. He's not within creation. He's not contained in creation at all. He eternally exists outside of creation. He's transcendent. He's not part of creation. He's the almighty creator, not a created being. This creature-creator distinction is foundational for everything else we're going to talk about. The difference between God and not God is the bedrock, the foundational truth for making sense of how God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. That's our first step of five. Here's step two. A terrible analogy about a girl and her doll. So some people object that God's ordaining everything makes God unjust. Something like this scenario of a girl playing with her doll. And none of my daughters have done this, so this is uh, imaginative. Imagine a girl who sternly commands her doll to stay on the bed. But then while playing with her doll, she intentionally pushes the doll from the bed to the floor. And then she scolds and spanks the doll. That's a terrible analogy for how God interacts with creation for at least two reasons. One, the doll lacks self-consciousness and is not morally responsible. And two, God doesn't exercise his authority over creation by forcing, by manipulating, by being a cosmic bully. That's not how God works. If God were within creation, if there were no creator-creature distinction, if God were within creation, then his meticulous sovereignty really would displace, it would remove our freedom, and that would make him a cosmic tyrant. But God is not within creation. He's not a creature. So, Here's a, a better analogy, a useful analogy, a novelist and the characters in his story. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the character Edmund betrays some people. And I'll not get more specific than that in case you sadly have not read that book. So who's responsible for Edmund's betrayal? Edmund or C.S. Lewis? Is it 50-50? Or like 75% Edmund and 25% Lewis? No. Edmund is fully responsible. And Lewis is fully responsible. But they're responsible in different ways. Edmund is fully responsible as a creature. As a character in a fictional story. Lewis is fully responsible as the creator. As the author of the fictional story. So Lewis, the author ordained what Edmund, the character, freely chose to do. So Edmund has moral responsibility for his choices, and Lewis does not. That's something like what we mean when we say that God, the creator, ordained what humans, the creatures, freely choose to do. The creator has authority over his creation like a novelist has authority over his story. And some of you have objections to this. So I'm going to be like Paul in Romans 9 and anticipate the objection. You might say to me then, but that analogy fails because it compares cardboard characters in a fictional story to complex human beings in the real world. It's much more complicated than that. To which I respond, I concede 
It is much more complicated than that. So yes, the analogy has limitations, but not mainly for that reason. It's telling to me that the main way people object to the analogy is like this. But humans in the real world are much greater than people in a fictional story. I've never heard someone object like this. But God is far more powerful and knowledgeable and benevolent than a human author. In other words, God can do way better than write a fictional story. He can design the universe with complex characters who freely and responsibly choose precisely what he ordains. So this analogy of a novelist and characters in his story is actually much much less offensive than another analogy that appears at least six times in the Bible. We just saw it in Romans 9. It's the analogy of a potter with his clay. So if it offends you to be compared to a character in a fictional story, what do you think of God repeatedly comparing you to a clay pot? All right, that's step three. Step four, here's where you got to buckle up. Defining key terms, there are two mutually exclusive ways to answer the question, how, or excuse me, what does free will mean? What does it mean? And these two ways are incompatibilism and compatibilism. This is the most technical part of the talk. Hang with me here. All right, let's define our terms. This first row here is just defining the terms. Incompatibilism means this. God's meticulous sovereignty and human freedom are incompatible. They don't fit together. They can't both be true. So the the next row is about God's sovereignty, and the next one's about free will. So according to this view, God's sovereignty is general. God is in charge of everything, but he doesn't ordain everything. So we have a free will in the sense that we can choose differently. That is, we can equally make alternative choices in the same circumstances. So here's how I would talk if I believed this view, incompatibilism. I'd say it like this. I am just as able to choose Christ as I am able not to choose Christ. As a radically depraved sinner, I am able to choose Christ because God's special saving grace, his prevenient grace, which is universal and resistible, that enables me to freely do so if I decide to. A God-ordained choice is not a real choice. That's, that's this first view, incompatibilism. Here's what compatibilism is. Definition. God's meticulous sovereignty and human freedom are compatible. They can both be true. They fit together. They don't contradict each other. So let's look at God's sovereignty and then human freedom. According to compatibilism, God's sovereignty is meticulous. God is in charge of everything and he ordains everything. Now, when it comes to free will, both views agree that we have a free will in the sense that we're morally responsible for what we choose. But here's the key difference. I believe this. We have a free will in the sense that we always choose what we most want. That is, we voluntarily choose what we most want in any given circumstance as long as our choices aren't constrained, aren't forced, aren't coerced. So here's how I would say it. I am unable 
to choose Christ until God changes my heart. I choose whatever my heart desires. I always choose according to my nature. So a tomato plant can't produce apples. And I can't choose Christ unless God changes my wanter, my heart, my nature. A God-ordained choice then is a real choice. This might help. This diagram here starts at the heart and works out the desires and choices. I choose what I choose because I want what I want because I am who I am. So let's start at the outermost level of choices. Choices are are flowing from your heart and your desires. You choose what you choose according to your strongest desires, what you think is most to your advantage. And you choose that way because of who you are. Your heart is the core or the essence of who you are. It's your innermost being. And you have a heart problem. Here's what Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that the intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Another way to refer to my heart is my nature, which is a complex of attributes. My heart or my nature determines what I want. And my nature is either unregenerate or regenerate. That is, either I'm a spiritual corpse or God has given me spiritual life. And that's the core reason that I either do or do not have the moral ability to glorify God. And I am responsible for my desires and choices because I'm responsible for my sinful heart. So that's our our fourth step, defining key terms. And then the question is, how is compatibilism even possible? How can God's meticulous sovereignty and human responsibility fit together? And the answer is really clear. It's a mystery. (laughs) Some Bible doctrines involve tensions. Let me show you a couple examples. The doctrine of the Trinity. There's one God. Three persons are called God. Those three persons are distinct. Or Christ's person. Christ is fully God. Christ is fully human. Christ is one person. Or the doctrine of providence. We're studying predestination. It's a subset of providence. God is meticulously sovereign. Humans are morally responsible. God is holy, all good, and never blameworthy. For each of these doctrines, there are at least three statements that the Bible teaches, and we feel like those statements are in tension. It makes sense to us that any two of them could be true, but when you add that third, it becomes hard to understand. And since it's difficult to understand how all three can be true at the same time, many people tend to accept two of them and deny or explain away the third. I want to exhort us to hold to all three because the Bible teaches all three. God is so amazing that he ordained both what we choose and that we choose freely. We freely choose what we most want. How exactly does God do that in a way that he is blameless and we are morally responsible for what we choose? How does this work? 
I don't fully understand because he doesn't tell us all the details. It's a mystery. There's tension here. But I believe that the Bible forthrightly proclaims both God's meticulous sovereignty and human responsibility without embarrassment, without attempting to philosophically harmonize them. Both are gloriously true, and we dare not tweak what the Bible teaches in order to remove an element of mystery. If we sense a problem, the problem is not with the God-breathed text of Scripture. It's with us. It's with our fallen and finite minds. And further, we can't put all the puzzle pieces together because we don't have all the puzzle pieces. Instead of leading us to question God and His ways, this should lead us to worship the infinite God. So here's how I would answer question six. Does unconditional election entail that we do not have a free will? It depends what you mean by free. We do not have a free will in the sense that we can equally make alternative choices. We have a free will in the sense that we always choose what we most want. Now we'll pause here and plan to answer four more questions about election next week. But for now, let's just revel in the truth that God sovereignly and graciously, lovingly chose to save individual sinners. Amen. Amen. God saves sinners. There it is in three words. God saves sinners. Salvation is from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let's respond to these truths about God's sovereign election by expressing gratitude and praise. First, let's do it by praying together, and then let's do it by singing. Let's pray. Father, it is humbling to know that you chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in your presence. We have no grounds to boast, none. Thank you that your sovereign choice is decisive. And thank you, Father, for your undeserved kindness to us. We deserve the opposite of your kindness. We deserve your wrath. And yet you sovereignly chose to save us. You sovereignly chose to be merciful and gracious to us. Thank you. And Father, thank you for saving us from our pervasive corruption. Thank you for resurrecting our spiritual corpses, for freeing us from sin's bondage. Thank you for changing our hearts, transforming them so that now we want to trust and obey you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.